Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. We're discussing today the new Handbook of Global Development, which will be published later this month, that's February 2022, by Routledge. The book is a major publication of some 750 pages with over 60 separate entries. The project's been led by Dr. Kieran Sims, but today I'm pleased to introduce and discuss the volume with one of the section editors, Dr. Nicola Banks. Nikki is Senior Lecturer in Global Urbanism and Urban Development in the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. She works on urban poverty, employment and livelihoods and has a particular interest in development NGOs and how they can play a transformative role in producing a more equitable system of international aid. My name is Jonathan Rigg, and I am Professor of Development Geography in the School of Geographical Sciences at the University of Bristol, and I'm also one of the section editors. Nikki, it's a pleasure to have this opportunity to talk to you today about your section and about the book. Your role has been as an editor of a section entitled Game Changers, and that is what I want to focus on today. Of all the sections of the book, this is the one I think which has the most puzzling title, Game Changers. So the first question that springs to mind is, so what were you thinking of and looking for that justified the inclusion of an entry in your section? Or to put it another way, what makes a topic game-changing in your view? That's great. Thank you, Jonathan, and thank you for a very warm welcome. Um, so for me, the idea of game-changers became a part of how I conceptualised big challenges when I was living in Uganda and working with the NGO BRAC there. So for us, uh, young people were a major development focus both because of the size of the youth population and the scale of the problems that they face. So that's really where the idea of game changers comes from. It's about these big shifts or these big issues that have the potential to make or break development outcomes at the local or the national or the global level, depending on whether and how they're supported by policymakers and by governments. Of course, things are not so binary as make or break in, in practice, there is a lot of um, nuance that we have to pay attention to. But that's really the basic idea, that both the scale of the problem or the size of the problem means that these issues have to be a major development priority or else. That, that, that really is the idea at the heart of this section on game changes of global development. Uh, we wanted to look at the global shifts taking place that can offer either big payoffs or massive challenges at scale depending on how they're managed and supported or not. Wonderful, thank you. As well, something else that I notice is that it's not just game changers, there's a question mark at the end of it. So you, it's game changers question. So I was wondering what were you, so obviously there's a possibility that some of the changes which appear to be game changers don't end up as such. Is that right? Is that what you were suggesting in adding a uh, question mark to the end of the title? Oh, that's a very good point. Um, I think that's a, a fair assessment in the sense that things that you think are going to be big game changers 
turn out not to be later down the line, or in the cases we've seen in the last two years, things that we could never have predicted become the biggest game changers of all. Uh, so there is an element of prediction there, which I suppose is why it becomes a, a question, not a, um, a statement of fact. Okay, okay. I, I noticed looking down the list, I think you've got 11 separate entries in your section. Um, and I should also say that it wasn't just you editing the section, um, you were editing it with Jonathan Makawira, and the pair of you have got, as I say, 11 entries. I mean, some of them to me seem fairly, if I can put it this way, obvious. I mean, COVID-19 obviously has been a game changer, um, but others are sort of less, sort of more surprised. I mean, you've got housing in there. So how do you mix up, if you like, if you like the obvious and the not so obvious? Um, I mean, it comes back to this question I started with, which what made it into this, this select group of 11 entries, which come together collectively are game changing, potentially? Yes, that's also a good question. I, I generally think of game changes as big shifts, like urbanization, creating a new potential. Housing is not a shift per se, but for us, we conceptualized it as a game changer because it's such a crisis that the world is facing in all corners. Um, it's not a problem confined to the global south. It's not a problem confined to the global north. We have a global housing crisis. That's as a result of kind of financial crisis. It's a crisis of urban politics, generally an, an urban, urban question. Um, and those two combined crises have left millions homeless and in financial desperation. So there is an acute lack of affordable housing in many corners of um, the globe in the world's cities. Um, there's been this big shift in seeing housing as a, a social good or a social right to housing as a valuable investment. And that has been a, a critical shift there with a game changing element because it's led to this crisis of inaffordable housing. Um, I have a colleague um, at Manchester called Tom Gillespie, who's a chapter on another contribution in this section. And he talks about real estate being the new frontier of capitalist urban development because state land is commodified in these new ways that benefit real estate companies at the cost of urban residents at scale because they, they are not producing housing for the majority of urban residents. So that's where we saw housing as such a big make or break issue. So the, the, the contributors in, in this section on housing are Poonam Devi and another of our co-editors, Naohiro Nakamura. So they're looking at the causes and nature of the global housing crisis in general, and then using their experiences in, in Fiji to illustrate the challenges facing urban residents there, particularly around the idea of informality. That is perhaps one area where there are distinct dimensions to the housing crisis in the global south the scale at which people are relying on the informal sector for housing. It does occur to, in the global north, but not to the same extent. Wonderful, thank you. Um, I was wondering whether you could, if there are any other of the entries that you sort of, I suppose, pick out as illustrative or exemplary of the points that you're trying to make in this section. So are there any, I mean, I, I know picking out certain entries is something which is you prefer not to do but I'm wondering can you dig into any more in a little bit more detail? Of course um, I think I, will, I and both the audience will miss Jonathan's contributions here because I know he was excited to talk about some of the contributions he particularly enjoyed but I was going to come back to two chapters but to treat them kind of together 
Um, and that is the chapters on aging populations and on children in youth. So my colleague Penny Vera Sanso contributed a chapter on aging and Vandra Harris Agisilau wrote on children and youth. I do have a bit of a bias here, I should say, because a, a large part of my research is focused on, on youth and urban youth in particular. But I think what I really enjoyed when I read these chapters was you had that rare moment when reading academic work where throughout the whole paper, I just thought, yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And it's that feeling you get when you agree with everything that's being said and you just wish that you'd been able to articulate it so succinctly and effectively in a book chapter. So I was just really on board with the, the overall arguments, which are very similar across both, both very different parts of the population. So both Penny and Vandra talk about the fact that aging populations and children and youth hold very well-defined spaces in, in development, thinking and practice. So we have UN agencies for, for children and youth, um, social protection systems that see aging populations as a particular site of intervention. And yet at the same time, we have this contradiction where we don't know enough about them and we're not, no, we don't have enough contextual knowledge that lets us understand vulnerabilities at those particular stages in the life course. And that's because we treat these age categories in, in silos. So we look at aging populations, we look at children, or we look at young people. In particular, in, in Penny's contribution, she argues about the fact that narrowing in in these very siloed areas is so dangerous almost to the point of redundancy in, in many cultures around the world where there is huge dependence within and across generations. We can't just look at one particular group and understand whether they are vulnerable or what type of vulnerabilities they face. Trying to understand poverty and, and disadvantaged across the life course needs more than that. And she argues quite passionately that it's because we've had these traditional, particularly Western frameworks for understanding these stages in the life course, that we've missed really important contextual understandings. Um, societies around the world don't live up to these neoliberal models of individualistic societies. Uh, and we need a much more nuanced and, and decolonized study of aging that recognize how aging is socially produced. It's not just about age. The other thing that makes me particularly excited about these two chapters is that following on from this moment of, oh, this is, <laughs> this is great, is that we're now building on them. Uh, so the three of us are, are working um, together, given our mutual interests and, and these kind of parallels across our work to look at life stages of children, young people and elderly across the life course and how they are so deeply interlinked. Um, so some of the discussions we've been having and, and taking forward have been uh, some of my research highlights of, of the last year. So that's been another bonus coming out of the book. Nice, nice. I mean, that brings me to a, another sort of thought, which is, you know, how on earth do you assemble these authors and get them to contribute to an enterprise such as this, but also assemble authors aren't, if I could put it this way, aren't the usual suspects? Because of course, I mean, both you and I are working in a UK context and, you know, we tend to if you like, look next door or down the road, and it's the same people writing, no doubt, very well about the things that we've heard them write or speak about before. Um, and I was wondering, how did you ensure that this section actually embraced the full sort of myriad voices that we see around the world? How, how did you find your authors, I suppose I'm asking? Um, I guess 
answering that question requires starting from the very beginning of our discussions as the, as the bigger um, editorial team that it was really important to us that we had that as a central value. So we wanted to represent a much more diverse, far-reaching set of authors and their perspectives on, on critical global development issues. And then Jonathan and myself, I guess you are both drawing upon different expertises broadly within the kind of topic of social development, but across very different areas. We have different networks to draw upon, um, but actually those networks weren't always the first port of call, because as you say, if you draw upon your own networks, you don't get that diversity. Um, so we did an initial brainstorming, came up with authors that were doing interesting or relevant work in those key areas, and then approached them. It was a particularly difficult time, I guess, to approach authors. We, we, we had authors on board before the pandemic hit, but after the pandemic hit and caring responsibilities and new teaching pressures did mean that some pulled out. But by and large, it, it wasn't a, a, a problem for the section. So yeah, we were, were so pleased with the, the contributing authors that we ended with, and in particular, their magnificent contributions that you can pick up without any prior knowledge and learn about everything you need to know about these um, interesting potential game changers of global development. So, I mean, if, you can, if we kind of take a step back from the details of each of the individual entries, and I mean, I see there's one on health and illness, citizenship, rights and global development, global value chains and development, in, international internal migration, forced migration, development and conflict, and so on. So you've got a whole host of different themes. And I'm wondering if we take a step back from the detail, what do you think are the, if you like, the main lessons or points that come through in the section? So what, what would you say are the, if you like, the, the sort of resonances between the different entries that you might sort of pull out of your section? Mm, that is also a very good question. Um, the two that jumped out at me would be the idea that we need to understand the social construction of some of these key issues. So when we think about policy issues like health services, we think about resources, we think about institutions, we think about structures. Um, but both Stephanie's tops chapter on, um, on COVID-19 and then Prani and Zoe's chapter on health, something that I'd never really considered given that it's well outside my expertise was how much all of these issues and problems associated with health are social issues, both the causes of health and the causes of health inequalities in experiencing ill health and in receiving treatment. And I think that's probably a parallel that drives, that runs through most of the chapters on one level or another, is that by not recognizing that in the traditional theories and frameworks that we use to understand many of these problems, we're really missing the important factor, which is the social, the, the, the inequalities between different people across many of these outcomes, which is so critical to what we want to address. So that is one, and I did have another one, and it's completely, it's completely gone. <laughs> well, maybe I can follow up with a question which might just jog your memory, which is, um, of course, when Kieran approached us all, Kieran Sims approached us all to um, inviting us to be section editors, something that he wanted to be sort of central to the book is a focus on, on pedagogy, on education, on learning. 
And I suppose that is one of the aspects of the book which distinguishes it from other handbooks of this form, um, which you can get um, at the moment. So I was wondering, thinking about students and and pedagogy, what were you trying to, I mean, I don't know if this will jog your memory about <laughs> the um, thing that you've slipped your mind. What, what, what were you trying to, if you like, sort of the learning principles that you were trying to get across in your section? So for me, the focus on, on pedagogy was one of the things that really excited me about the handbook. I think it's definitely a, a unique selling point to our, to our book. And then particularly for this um, subsection on game changers of global development, I think that's even more of the case because for me, the pedagogical implications of these chapters is potentially game changing in themselves. So I think it's, it's clear from these chapters that current and future professionals absolutely have to be taught in new and innovative ways that bring alternative voices and perspectives into the classroom. Um, they have to be taught in ways that reflect the global realities of how millions of people around the world are accessing work, services, and, and of where they live. Uh, across all of the chapters, we're seeing that these ways of living, working, um, and accessing services rarely fit into to Western models of how things work and the theories that we have that have dominated thinking and practices. So we, we have a responsibility as, as teachers to, to bring different voices into the classroom, to bring different insights. There are really important things I wanted to, to reflect on here that come out from our chapters. Um, so Jonathan Makawira in his chapters on um, disability and development talks about the need for unlearning of our knowledge and our behaviors and how we as, as teachers can support that practice in our classroom. Um, and I think it's also important to say that that has to be done in a very thoughtful way, not just in a provocative way, but in a way that, that supports students through that process. There's another chapter by Jessica Hawkins on conflict that outlines a really wonderful pedagogy of teaching conflict and development. And as part of that, she highlights how important it is to consider the potential mental health burdens of students in the classroom when learning about something that is, is sensitive and could be trauma inducing. And then another thing that excites me pedagogically from the chapters is, is that idea of bringing alternative voices into the classroom or taking students outside of the classroom to talk to alternative voices. So in, in their chapter, Diana Mitlin and colleagues highlight the impact that bringing community activists from informal settlements in Nairobi into the classroom at the University of Manchester has on the learning experience and the types of knowledge that students get through these, these new voices and new eyes. And likewise, Poonam and Nauhiro highlight the benefits of their field lab approach. They take planning students out of the classroom into the, this living lab of informal settlements in, in Fiji so they can learn about the realities of informal housing. And I think that kind of place-based or people-based learning can be particularly powerful pedagogically, if we like alliteration. <laughs> But I think for me there, just to, to round up the, the discussion of, of global development game changes, is that ultimately, if we want our future planners, our future professionals to be able to address these global development challenges, how can they do that if they don't understand these lived experiences? Or how can they rectify the continued tendency for professionals to continue to design programs from the outside while excluding the solutions devised by low-income communities around the world? That's a wonderful way to end um, this discussion. Um, thank you, Nikki, for a fascinating foray 
into what you're seeking to achieve with this section of the Routledge Handbook of Global Development. Thank you. Jonathan, and thank you everyone. I hope you enjoy the handbook. There's something for everyone. (laughs) 